If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Gawthorne. Today's guest is Heather Jones, Professor in Modern and Contemporary European History at University College London. Heather's new book, For King and Country, examines the role that the British monarchy played during the First World War and explores how the conflict shaped cultural attitudes to the royal family, both within Britain and across the empire. Heather was joined in conversation by BBC History Revealed staff writer Emma Slatterley-Williams. At the start of your book, you comment on how other biographies and work on George V and the British monarchy during the early 20th century have often bypassed the First World War. Why do you think this is? I think that a lot of the biographies of of monarchs tend to try and cover a very large time span and move obviously from their birth right through to their death. And I think the First World War is, is such a specialist area and there's been so much new research that a lot of biographers tended to try to skirt through it quite quickly. Um, the other thing was that actually... In the post-war period, what the monarchy had been doing during the war 
it really began to be forgotten. The focus was very much on how the monarchy commemorated the war rather than on, on its actual wartime work. So I think for biographers, um, there, there was a tendency maybe not to see the magnitude of what they'd done. Um, and one of the other things was that some biographers who did cover did cover the war, you know, in quite detailed chapters. Um, I'm thinking of of, of Harold Nicholson, for example. Um, they tended to to really focus on the political and the actual sort of the, the charitable war work and the welfare war work, it tended to get less attention because that was what people uh, in, maybe in the 1950s uh, writing biographies were, were slightly less interested in in that period. So before the First World War, how were the British monarchy viewed? Before the First World War, the British monarchy is, is, is seen as a very authoritative institution. So it's very much seen as a symbolic of the state, um, but also very, very um, symbolic in, in religious terms as well. And this is before 1914, still quite a, a religious society. Um, and there's sort of a sense of awe around the monarchy. Um, it, it's, it's very much a sense of awe and respect um, and a certain distance, um, a, certain, um, a certain admiring from afar. Um, there, there is a, a start to changing that with the reign of George V. Um, he and Queen Mary do start doing things like visiting mines, uh, going down a mine before the First World War, visiting miners' cottages. Um, but, but really, that's very new when the war breaks out. Um, that change has only just started. Um, really, before this, the, the, the kind of the Edwardian monarchy, the Victorian monarchy, um, it's, very, it's very much the pinnacle of the British class system, and it's seen as something to, to be to be to be viewed and admired from afar by ordinary people. Were there any private conversations between the royal cousins, so George V, uh, Wilhelm, and of Germany, and Nicholas of Russia, to try and avert war? There weren't private conversations as such. Um, the Kaiser's brother uh, was used as an emissary uh, by Kaiser Wilhelm II um, in, in the weeks leading up to the war. He was in England. He spoke with the king um, and he got the impression that, uh, that, that Britain would remain neutral uh, erroneously from that conversation. He, he sort of heard what he wanted to hear in that conversation, actually. Um, and when we when when we look at the, the three cousins, the communications in that period is all uh, by 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 letter or telegram. Um, so you're not seeing a, a kind of personal um, a meeting up or anything in that period. They're all in their in, in in their own countries. Now there had been periods before where royal diplomacy had been done in in sort of meetings, events such as family weddings. Uh, the most important of which was um, the 1913 wedding of the of the Kaiser's daughter, um, where we do see the, the, the cousins coming together. Um, there are conversations about military issues and foreign policy issues, but all with the in the British case with the with the approval and, and in a way collusion uh, of the Foreign Office. Um, so, so really, the period just before the war, um, communication is really open to, to, to error, to, to, to confusion, and they aren't all in the, in, put in the same room to, to kind of hammer it out at all. And in many cases, they have very different amounts of power. Um, if we think of the state structures um, in Britain, George V's uh, power and influence operates really differently to that of the autocratic Tsar um, or of, of, of Kaiser Wilhelm, um, who has is, who is a lot more uh, freedom in, in, in military areas. So when it came to uh, visiting the front, did, did George visit his troops uh, very often? Uh, King George V visited the front on six occasions during the war, and um, he really he really made a huge effort to to actually be present uh, and see his troops. Um, he inspected uh, every 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 division before they before they went to the front. Uh, he would go down and, and inspect those units while they were still in in Britain. And then when troops were at the front, uh, he would travel around in a, in a car and and try and, and try and try and try and see as many of the men as he could, or have them see him uh, when they were lined up along the roadside. He also went into quite forward areas uh, to try and meet troops. Uh, and, and, and just to kind of 
show that he show that he was in, he, he was interested in their welfare. He was trying to be supportive. Some of these visits were very unusual. Um, in the 1914 uh, visit, which was a real break with precedent because a British monarch was actually not supposed to lead his men in war according to a convention uh, that, that went back uh, to, to, the, to the 18th century, um, George V sort of went to France to see what was happening and, and tried to see virtually all of the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force in the field in 1914. So that was quite an unusual break with precedent um, and presence on the battlefield, if you like, for a British monarch um, in modern times. And then the 1918, uh, first visit of 1918 when uh, George V um, goes uh, at very short notice um, upon news of, of, of the German spring offensive uh, beginning. Um, this is a huge German offensive against the British lines. It pushes British troops back very, very, very dramatically. They, they're basically in headlong retreat. Um, George V within 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 hours um, announces he's going to go to the front um, to, to be with his armies in that moment of real peril. Um, and that's a very unusual trip as well, because actually um, the commander in chief in the field has very little time to prepare for it. And in fact, is too busy to really see the king. Uh, and the king doesn't particularly want to see him either. He's going to be with the, the troops themselves. And he spends most of that visit in 1918 visiting uh, uh, visiting hospitals, visiting the wounded, who are, and in some cases, men who've literally just come from the front lines because the whole, all the dressing stations and hospitals have been pushed back um, as a result of the retreat. So George V is arriving in a very chaotic situation. He even sees uh, people being operated on. It's quite an unusual visit again for a British monarch. This is this is this is a, a, you know a, a very unique situation um, for, for a British monarch in the 20th century. Um, and it is appreciated by the troops. He, he you know, he's turning up um, in, in, in locations where they wouldn't have expected to see him um, and expressing his support for them. Do we know what they thought of him then and, and what the reaction was back home of, of the king going to the front? Well, the reaction back home is is very much coloured by um, what one would call royalist propaganda in the newspapers, um, and a very strong sense of kind of monarchist patriotism amongst um, um, amongst the middle classes. Um, but we do know that that amongst, uh, for example, munitions workers, there's a real sense of of, of positivity around uh, both the king and queen and and their and their their children um, because of the number of munitions factories they have visited. And this wasn't a particularly safe thing to do. Um, in some cases, we have photographs of George V standing surrounded by shells. Um, as we know at the time, munitions were, were, were not always reliable. Um, some were faulty. Um, there are shell explosions where, where munitions workers are killed. Um, and, 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 and there was, there was some consternation actually amongst officials when they, when they saw some of these images of the king, um, surrounded by, sur surrounded by explosives. Um, so, so munitions workers at home were very positive about about the royal visits to the front as well. They saw them in in, in similar terms to the king's interest in, in workers and the working classes. Um, and he was developing this reputation for himself during the war as a, a king who who wanted to be um, supportive of workers. Um, he was referred to as a kind of a working man at one point in some of in some of the newspapers, which is quite a surprising term. It's very associated with socialism, um, and they're referring to the monarch as kind of working man who's putting in a, a ten hour a day, fourteen hour a day. Um, at his job. Um, the, the troops at the front, uh, the reactions were more mixed. Um, what we see um, in the initial uh, phases of, of, of the war is uh, surprise at the king coming um, and, and a kind of appreciation at him coming as well. A slight a level of bemusement. Um, sort of, what is the king doing, doing here uh, in, in, in some of the 1914 uh, reports? Um, and a sense also of the king being associated with home. 
This idea that actually seeing the king really reminds these men of their homes. In, in many homes in the period, a picture of the king and queen would actually hang in, in the house. Um, and and they, certainly the image of, of the king and queen was to be found in all public buildings. And, and so a sense a, a sense of kind of a familiarity and, and, and missing home, actually, a kind of homesickness sometimes comes out. Later in the war, we do get a sense of actual, um, in some cases, some negative reactions. Um, soldiers who are just fed up and too exhausted to really care when they see uh, the king's cargo passed. Um, soldiers who, in some cases, grumble um, that actually, you know, they they feel like they are not being prioritised. And we find um, there's an interesting uh, memo that refers to um, the fact that in for, for later visits uh, by 1918, they want the king to talk to the men first and not the officers because those advising the monarchy have become aware that actually there is this grumbling developed. Um, and there is a, in 1917, there is a kind of moment um, where the reactions are more mixed. Um, by 1918, again, the end of the war, uh, reactions are very positive. And I think the Ludendorff offensive moment is actually a really key one uh, when, the, when, when the king does go out in such, in, in, in such remarkable circumstances um, and is present um, at a moment of danger. Because if, if Britain had lost the war at that point, the British king would have been associated with defeat. It was a big political risk to take to go out at that point. Um, and be present. Um, and by the end of the war, um, he, um, the, the, the king, uh, after the armistice, goes to visit uh, the, the battlefields again and see the men who, who, are, who are awaiting demobilisation um, and again to kind of congratulate them on their war sacrifices. So there is a real sense, I think, of, of kind of 1917 as being this moment of wobble and mixed reactions. By 1918, it, it's kind of come full circle. And again, there's a sense of the, of the king as somebody who actually who's really genuinely interested in what's happening to his troops um, and who is who is sort of above politics. He certainly doesn't get the negative reaction that, say, um, certain politicians get uh, by the middle of the war. I believe that there were a few near misses with the king when he was at the front. Could you tell us a bit about those? Uh, yes, the, it's, it's, it's interesting that, the, that in some cases, um, the places that the king, king was going to um, were places that that, that were uh, were dangerous. I mean, this this is not something one would maybe necessarily expect. Um, obviously, he has a police security detail with him, um, but there are real concerns. Um, some of the areas he visits are, are shelled uh, immediately afterwards, um, and there's a sense that actually um, this may, you know, this this the, the Germans may actually be trying to target him. Um, in, in one occasion, he goes to uh, Bayeul, and and it's it's it's, it's shelled um, very soon after he leaves. Uh, in other cases, he turns up at places that were that were shelled the night before. Um, so. So there is a sense of, of concern about that. There's also an occasion where he's in a communication trench um, with uh, Frederick Ponsonby, the keeper of the Privy Purse, um, and shells pass overhead uh, and land not far from that trench. Um, and that, you know, that again is a, is a moment of, of, of real concern for advisers. Um, advisers are, are by, by, as the war goes on, they really beef up uh, his police detail going to France. Um, they make new, new measures for rapid evacuation of the king should, should an offensive break out. Um, they're taking this very seriously. But ultimately, the the king himself um, and 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 also his son, the, the Prince of Wales, who is who is a staff officer, are both very keen to not be seen as just staying at, a, at a, you know far behind the lines at a thirty kilometres distance uh, away from away from any danger. He, the king is never in the front line. Okay, he never is allowed to go that far forward. And um, his son, the Prince of Wales, does sneak into the front line on several occasions and really you know sort of is very popular with the troops who know he's doing this of his own choice as a staff officer in the role he had. He actually didn't need to go to these locations and he he, he constantly tries to um to, to 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 get to the very to the very front or visit areas that are that are being heavily shelled. Um, the king himself 
doesn't get to the front line, but again pushes those boundaries and is visiting um, visiting towns in in what we what one would describe as the kind of rear area uh, of the front, which are uh, places of danger. Um, and I was surprised to find that I was surprised to find he was allowed to go to those locations um, and and you know be present uh, in that way. He also observes the starts of offensives um, uh, through field glasses uh, from from you know from from um, high positions, hills, locations like that. So he is. He's much more of a, a battlefield presence, if you like, um, than one might initially expect. The king was commander-in-chief symbolically, did, but did he have any say on military strategy or did he ever give an opinion? So in, in the tradition of, 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 of the 20th century monarchy, the king is commander-in-chief but delegates that, 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 that power and, that, and, 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 and decision-making to the commander-in-chief in the field. Um, so George V was commander-in-chief of the British armies, um, but the commander-in-chief in the field was the one making all of the military decisions. And for most of the war, that is Sir Douglas Haig. Now, Haig is very close to the king. Um, they, they write constantly uh, to each other. Haig sends his diaries to the king for the king to read them uh, as soon as he's finished writing them, which is a remarkable act of kind of personal exposure, uh, if you like, about your, de- your decision-making, your daily life at the front, etc., uh, to the monarch. Um, and, and it's a very close relationship. So there is an element of influence there. Um, now, obviously, the armies themselves are supposed that the, the commander in chief in the field um, uh, and the decision making in the armies is meant to be, be being controlled by uh, the government, uh, the, the British government and the prime minister. Um, but there is a space there for royal influence. So it's not the case that, that King George V is directly um, giving military decisions um, or ordering um, particular strategic uh, decisions, but he is giving his opinion on them and giving it quite strongly. And in some places, his opinion um, is weighed up by, by cabinet and it is the opinion that they go with. In other cases, um, it is clear that Haig appeals to the king when a decision is made that Haig doesn't like um, in order that the king will then uh, use influence uh, with the government um, in order to to see if the government will revisit that decision. So it's not it's not direct control, um, but there certainly is a lot more influence and behind the scenes involvement uh, than 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 than, uh, than than perhaps might at first appear. This is not a symbolic figurehead role in the First World War. George V is a much more politically active king. Uh, the monarchy has evolved across the 20th century. Uh, at this point, it still has quite a lot of actual uh, political um, uh, uh, political influence and, and involvement, if one thinks of the Irish context as well. Um, king George V's involvement in the Home Rule uh, uh, Buckingham Palace Conference in 1914 in an attempt to bring um, uh, divisions in Ireland uh, to an end. Um, you know, there's very direct political interventions in some cases by George V throughout his reign. Um, and in the case of military commanders, certainly there, 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 there is royal, um, uh, royal influence going on and it is affecting some of the decision-making process. In particular, the fact that the king backs Sir Douglas Haig right to the end of the war um, as the commander-in-chief in the field um, and does not want him replaced with anybody else um, is a really big factor in Haig uh, retaining that role. Um, the prime minister... Uh, by 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 1918, and, and at the at, at the latest, has lost has lost faith in Hague, and really would like to get rid of him and replace him. Um, and the king is is a key key factor in why that doesn't happen. Douglas Hague was quite a controversial figure, wasn't he? He was he was blamed by some for the the great loss of life at the Somme. So did that close relationship affect the king's reputation? 
it's very interesting um, to sort of look at look at Sir Douglas Haig. In fact, Sir Douglas Haig's reputation is very strong until his death um, uh, in the late 1920s, and his funeral is attended by by hundreds of thousands of people. And um, so he's actually a very popular commander. Um, our modern view of him is as kind of the butcher of the First World War, and that's a very common popular view. That view really comes in in the 1960s, actually, um, and it's it's a it's a much later view. So actually. Um, King George V is not damaged in public eyes by his association with Sir Douglas Haig. Um, what, what's, what, what's interesting is that the view around the First World War is a sort of a pointless war, a futile war, a war that was that, that was too costly for in, in British lives uh, to have been worth fighting. That view starts to come in in the 1930s uh, with key, key books being published. And one thinks of Vera Britton's book, Testament of Youth, um, and things of what's called the kind of literature of disenchantment as these memoirs, these very um, anti-war memoirs start to appear in that period in Britain. And, and they start to affect the public view of the war. It takes time. And George V is actually dead by the time that big shift in, in mood starts to happen um, towards the, the second half of the 1930s. So he really escapes any kind of opprobrium from his association with, with Sir Douglas Haig. One also has to remember... His role in 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 these military decision making uh, processes is not known to the general public, and much of this is operating through um, systems of of kind of what we would understand sort of old fashioned patronage, um, uh, jockeying for royal influence at court, um, military um, uh, military um, hierarchies, um, uh, which would have been not known uh, to the ordinary soldier at the front or the ordinary person on the street in Britain at the time. Um, so royal influence is something that is that's behind the scenes. What was Queen Mary's role during this time? What was she doing back home? Queen Mary in the First World War is immensely popular. Um, she's actually quite a shy personality. So there is this strange um, um, uh, kind of uh, reality of a, a quite a shy woman who's, who, 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 who acts very formally in public as a way almost of kind of uh, compensating for that. Um, and the public really... Um, really respond to her well. I mean, it's 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 a sort of something of a paradox because unlike the king who spends the war dressed in uniform, uh, very much you know taking on a war a war effort role, and um, she 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 does lots of war work too. But she still also acts very much um, in, in you know dresses as as uh, in, in her pre-war uh, style. She doesn't particularly um, you know sort of uh, dress down for go, going to going to munitions factories or anything. So it, there's an interesting kind of public response of, of her re- to, to her reaching out. Uh, which is seen as um, as very dignified. She's seen as a very dignified um, uh, figure, and, and you know, always with her, always with her, with her, her parasol, always, uh, always, always um, asking lots of questions. She's a very inquisitive mind. And when she when she when she visits the front, which she does in 1917, and um, she asks lots and lots of questions. When she visits munitions factories, she asks lots and lots of questions. She talks to people, she engages with them, um, and so she quickly gains this kind of reputation, of sort of mother of the nation in many ways. Um, someone who is seen as um, as 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 very. Uh, Sort of dignified, respectable, dependable, um, and again as as, a, as an important support to the king. So that's also very much seen uh, how she's portrayed in her role, a maternal figure. Um, and you have to remember, Britain at this in in this war is very disorientated. This was not the type of war anyone expected to wage. Trench warfare seems like some kind of um, uh, Armageddon, really. I mean, if we think of war before 1914, um, it was wars of movement. It was what we call cabinet warfare. It was fast. It didn't involve huge numbers of troops, and it was often in the colonial sphere. To suddenly see a huge war of trenches, industrialised war landscape across across France and Belgium, countries many British middle class people would have visited on their holidays in this period as the as the tourist industry opened up. Um, 
really was quite a shock. Uh, many people would have gone to the beaches of northern France. They were very accessible from London by, by train. Um, you know, you could get there within a matter of, of, of kind of six to eight hours, actually. It was really, really well networked in uh, to, 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 to the London tourist, uh, tourist industry. So this shock, this disorientation, this sense of calamity and the sense of worry um, meant that, meant that, that you know, Queen Mary was a very reassuring figure because she looked exactly as she'd always looked. She behaved exactly as she'd always behaved. She made people feel that, that there was a kind of steadiness there um, and that while the world had been thrown into turmoil, here was this rock at the centre of the British monarchy that wasn't changing, that was, that was, that was a kind of mater- maternal figure people could turn to. She's also very involved in charitable work and this goes down extremely well. Uh, she's, she's very proactive from the start of the war in setting up the Queen Mary uh, Needlework Guild, which is uh, builds on an old needlework organisation she had already. She's very quick to reach out to labour women and make quite close friendships with some of them, like Mary MacArthur. Um, very, very interested in the in the plight of the working classes in Britain during the war, um, and visits innumerable hospitals and talks to the wounded in those hospitals uh, as as well. So. Um, her actual war work is, is again, very important in creating this idea of a monarchy that cares, a monarchy that is interested, um, a monarchy that is giving up its own luxuries. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're not involved in any um, any kind of major social entertainments. They're all cancelled. They're all stopped. They don't go to the theatre during the war. Um, they, they, they give up all, all um, luxurious foods. Uh, pastry is, is, is stopped. Cake. Uh, all these things are, are sort of barred from the royal palaces. Uh, alcohol as well, famously given up. So there's a sense of Queen Mary in, in, in that sense as well, sort of sacrificing with the king for the nation, which again is very positive. Then the other two aspects of her image that matter. Um, she's a very religious woman. And this, again, is, it gives her a popular appeal in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a war setting where the, much of the public is actually turning to um, uh, religion uh, in the, in, you know, in, on the home front in this, in, in this moment of, of, of fear. And it's quite a religious society. So she's seen as, as very, again, someone who, who has a kind of, um, uh, I suppose, dignity again and integrity uh, as a result of that to that audience. Um, and again, she's a, she's a mother. And at the end of the day, that is probably the strongest uh, thing that she brings to, to to the image of the monarchy, because she has two sons who are who are seen as serving in the war. Um, uh, Prince Albert, who is in the navy, who serves at the Battle of Jutland um, at real risk. I mean, you know, you're on board a ship, you can be sunk. Um, and uh, at, at the Western Front, um, um, her, her, her oldest son, the Prince of Wales, is serving as a staff officer. And people know from, from what soldiers are telling them and what they're writing home and what's being published in the newspapers from soldiers' letters that the Prince of Wales is also putting himself in danger. Um, so, so the sense of Queen Mary as a mother is very important. And we have accounts of other mothers on the home front meeting at her, her at events and saying, you're a mother too, you understand this, you get this, you understand how worried I am about my son. And that's a really important bridge between uh, the monarchy and, 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 and ordinary people in this in this total war situation. Queen Mary was the daughter of a German noble and the British family had a lot of German connections. The king changed their name from Saxe-Coburg and Gotha to Windsor. How aware were the British public of the German connections and did it affect the royal family's popularity? So when I looked into the German connections of the royal family during the war, I was expecting to really find that, you know, from the start of the war, this was like a, a major issue for the public. And this was something that that, that, that would have created anti-monarchist sentiment. I mean, if we look at the case of Russia, um, being being of German origin really damns the Tsarina um, Alexandra. She's hated for it. And it's a big factor in, 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 in leading up to the Russian Revolution, actually. Um, 
if we look at the British context, the press is largely largely very muted on this. Um, there's a couple of very radical left-wing newspapers that try to raise the issue of the monarchy's German connections in the first months of the war, and 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 their circulation really dwindles. And this you know this this line of approach doesn't work. It doesn't attract public uh, support. So so. There's a kind of silence around uh, the monarchy's German connections for, for much of the first uh, first phase of the war. And it's really only when we get to 1917 and the Russian Revolution that suddenly there is a public debate about the monarchy's German links. And that does start to, to appear in the press and that does start to appear as something that people are now getting concerned about. And that's linked to war weariness, to a sense of, of, of suspicion of spies and, 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 and of conspiracy theories, which start to really appear in this point in the war. And so this idea that maybe there's Germans within who are weakening the British war effort. And so, so it's actually something, it's actually a late, a late war phenomenon. And so looking at that and, and, and the response to it, the fact that, that in response to that 1917 moment, the king then changes the name of the dynasty, um, made me start to think, well, why isn't, why isn't there this, this concern about their, their, their German connections earlier? Um, and I think part of it is that, that George V and Queen Mary do a very good job of espousing and, and projecting British patriotism. You know, they really are, um, in some ways, just emphasising that, that, you know, they, they kind of symbolise the, 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 the British people of, of, of Britain and the empire at war. Um, but also that's kind of projected onto them as well, because people, when the war breaks out, um, there's this big romantic kind of rush to the, uh, the colours, there's a big uh, romanticisation of war, there's a sense of, 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 of um, kind of uh, unity that, that suddenly appears in, in August and September uh, 1914 and, and, and a real awareness of the danger of war. People aren't under illusions that this war is going to cost uh, mass casualties. Those casualties start right from the very first weeks of the conflict, but there is a sort of home front, um, home front narrative of that this is about glory. And as part of that, that has to be, they're, they're, you know, a figurehead is in a way needed for that. So that the, the, the royals themselves almost get sucked into the, the role of being symbolic of Britishness and Britain as well, uh, because that is what is needed in that moment. Uh, and people project that onto them. Uh, and so you really, you really do see that, that, that nobody really wants to talk about their Germanness in that phase of the war and, or any links they might have to, to, to Germany. Um, and, and so it's actually a very late war, a late war phenomenon. Now, what, what, what is important is that actually behind the scenes, obviously at a personal level, um, the, the royals have very close connections to uh, people who are living in Germany who are their relatives. So if we think of Queen Mary, one of her, one of her, her, her closest um, uh, correspondents um, uh, is a very dear elderly aunt who is living uh, living in Germany. And and Queen Mary um, continues to, to to write to her. Um, in some cases, uh, we, we know, for example, other members of the royal family, Queen Alexandra, who's the king's mother, continues to write to her German relatives too. So there there is communication that is that that that, that does continue um, through intermediaries um, in. During the war, um, but there is there is no sense uh, for for the royal couple that they are anything other than British. And the king is very upset in 1917 when when people start in this conspiracy kind of moment of the war, rumors start to spread that he's an alien. Um, he, you know, famous quote: "He says, I'm damned if I'm an alien." Um, he, he's he's really really upset about that, and there's a sense of 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 um, shock. Uh, that, that anyone would question their their Britishness because their own identity, their own self identity, um, is very much uh, as being um, a, a British dynasty uh, that has um, some German and other groups uh, in it, in its ancestry um, and and in, in and in its uh, continental relationships. Do we know whose idea it was to change the royal house's name? 
Lord Stanfordham, the the uh, the King's private secretary, is key to the decision to change uh, the, the name of the dynasty from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to, to Windsor in 1917. Uh, but then there's a coterie of advisors who will get involved in this and are all suggesting different potential names and what might be what might be a good idea. Um, at one point, the name Stuart is sort of bandied about, and then that's seen as as unlucky. It doesn't didn't end so well. Uh, so there's a, you know this is quite interesting. All these different names, and and, and Stanfordham is the one who settles on Windsor, um, which 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 is very effective. Um, the, but the name change in some ways also comes preemptively. And one of the things I argue in the book is it's quite important to note that this debate around around the moment of the Russian Revolution, February 1917, the first Russian Revolution, uh, that with the Bolshevik one follows in October, and um, that, that that discussion around revolution and overthrowing monarchies that suddenly breaks out as a result of that moment. Um, the British press is still very respectful of the British monarchy when they're discussing all of these continental events. And they actually um, make a lot of, take a lot of pains to really try and distinguish a constitutional British monarchical tradition, which they say is unique and different from the kind of German or Russian versions, which they say are tyrannical and autocratic. Um, and from the start of the war, even they've been saying, you know, the Kaiser's type of kingship is utterly un-British, utterly different to what we have, completely different model. Um, that, you know, we're going to war with it because it's tyrannical, it's oppressive, it's evil. Um, it, you know, it, 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 it's nothing like our British constitutional democratic uh, version. Um, and so I think that I think some of the name changes actually um, happens in advance of any kind of big public opinion change against the monarchy. Uh, they cut that off before it even happens with the name change. You get a sense that ordinary people um, aren't actually that concerned about uh, about about the, the monarchy's germanness that it's really coming in in the spring of 1917 from um you know coming coming from um, um socialist uh, and, and fringe radical left wing uh, magazines and newspapers uh, and also from uh, some parts of, of the of the british middle classes if you like the intelligentsia um but the actual the bulk of the ordinary munitions workers you don't find many references there um at when they're talking about the monarchy to anything other than sort of excitement at at, at royals coming to visit the factories or, uh, you know, kind of a, a genuine um, uh, interest in how new this is, that they're actually going to get to see the, see, see, the, see the royals in person. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so you do get a sense at court of huge fears um, that British workers might rise up and overthrow the over, overthrow the monarchy that they might uh, arrest them and throw them into prison and um, that they're that you know that the police might not stay loyal um, and these are really extreme fears in the context of 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 1918 we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So you mentioned the Russian Revolution there. Is it true that King George um, was one of the forces behind withdrawing Britain's offer of asylum to the family of Tsar Nicholas? King George V is the decision maker who ultimately withdraws the offer of asylum to uh, the, the, the Romanovs, to uh, Tsar Nicholas II and his family. Um, the British uh, government tonight had made that offer. Um, it had been sent out. And, and so here we have this uh, example of what I was talking about, this kind of royal influence behind the scenes, where it's actually uh, the king uh, who, and his private secretary who request for, for that decision to be revisited uh, and, and, and rethought and make lots of arguments uh, about why it should be uh, withdrawn. Um, they're very concerned about uh, the unpopularity of the Tsar and the Tsarina in Britain. Um, they are seen as... as, as, as uh, um, very autocratic. They weren't popular even before 1914. They had very negative connotations. And during the war, continental monarchies um, have have kind of been divided into two groups: um, those that that have kind of continued to 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 be seen as as autocratic or um, uh, removed from their peoples, uh, and those that are seen as as as, as sort of um, um, really taking the you know taking on kind of the war sacrifice of the ordinary people. So. The Belgian monarchy is incredibly popular in Britain during the war. The Italian monarchy is very popular. Both of those have monarchs who are, you know, go to the front, spend lots of time with their troops. In the Belgian case, actually command. Um, and so, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're seen as very popular. In the case of the Tsar and Tsarina, um, they have had such negative pre-war press. That Russia, Russia is seen as, as very oppressive of its ordinary uh, peasant class and workers. Um, and they, their, their reputation doesn't really recover from that, even though the Tsar uh, and the Tsarina both make really big efforts to try and get involved in the war effort in their countries. The Tsarina takes up nursing. Uh, the Tsar uh, go, goes to the front and takes up a command role. Uh, but none of that changes the view of the British public. So, um in a nutshell, what we see is um, George V starting to get concerned about what will public opinion think of him if the Tsar and Tsarina come to Britain. Um, and there is, you know, there, there have been other royal refugees during the war. They've gone uh, to places like Switzerland. They've all been fine. So in this revolutionary moment, which is a liberal revolution in Russia at this point, not a Bolshevik one in the spring of 1917, when George V is, is making this, this, using this influence and making this uh, request for this decision to be rescinded, of, this decision of asylum to be rescinded. Um, in this period, there's no way that George V could have known that this revolution was going to turn Bolshevik. That in fact the Tsar and the Tsarina wouldn't be able to go anywhere else. That in fact this, you know, this this decision has such portentous consequences for them. Um, and, and so he is. He is. The, he ultimately does make that call for them not for, for the Foreign Office and, and the government to withdraw that offer of asylum, which they then do, which is very revealing of royal influence. Um, and they refer to how this, how their, how the arrival of the Russian royals would embarrass the royal family. 
and where would they live? And, and may, they might, I think there's a fear also, they might eclipse the British royal family as well. Um, and so, so there's, you know, there's, there, there's, there's, there's evidence there of just how important um, the monarchy is in decision making. Um, but also, I think of uh, of the benefit of hindsight. Um, at that point, the Russian Revolution was forming a, a liberal constitutional state. Um, probably uh, in all likelihood going to go, it seemed expected to become a, a republic um it, it, but but you know it's not very clear that they're going to they're going to kill uh, the, the, the 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 Romanov family at all at that point um later on i think george v bitterly regretted that decision and from all accounts um made extreme efforts to try and offer asylum to 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 other royals later on uh, who who required it um, and if one thinks of the duke of edinburgh's family the late duke of edinburgh's family uh, being evacuated uh, from 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 greece um uh, by, by at royal request uh, on a british warship one thinks of the evacuation of the tsar's uh, mother um the tsar's sister coming to the, the uk after uh, after the war and um, so they 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 do i think i think there's a there is there is um uh, a sense of regret around that decision afterwards once they realise, um, you know, what has actually happened to, 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 to the Russian royal family. Do we have any sense of how rattled they were by the overthrow um, of other monarchies like, like Russia and later Germany and the Austria-Hungary Empire? Or did they did they back themselves to survive? What's very interesting during the war is the the British royal family are more worried about their own survival and underestimate the chances of it as well um, than than perhaps uh, they 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 needed to be. Um, the British monarchy is is in many ways very successful during the war in bolstering its popularity and in associating itself with uh, war sacrifice and as a symbol of, of kind of patriotic symbol of both the 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 the, the, the island of Britain and the, the UK and and and, and the empire. Um, if if one looks at the 1918-1919 moment, um, it is a very dangerous moment. But actually, uh, victorious Allied monarchies um, uh, in the West. Um, they do. They do survive it. The Belgian monarchy, the Italian monarchy, and those are the monarchies that kind of follow the most similar model, wartime model to the to the British one. Um, but the royals themselves are incredibly shocked by what happens with the with the overthrow of the the Russian regime, with with the abdication of the Tsar. And um, they're 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 actually quite pleased about the end of the German dynasty uh, in 1918, the German revolution and the declaration of a German republic. So there is a sense there of, of that Wilhelm II has got his just desserts. Um, the king writes some quite powerful things in his diary about how Wilhelm has caused the war and, um, you know, it, is, it has caused the most barbaric uh, uh, war in history. And and and, and basically kind of the, 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 the general gist of it is that Wilhelm II deserves everything he gets. Um, with the Austro-Hungarian case, um, the British uh, government's policy had changed towards the end of the war to trying to promote the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and to promote nation states uh, that would be uh, friendly to Britain um, in, in, in its aftermath. Um, so again, there, it, government policy has changed. And again, the view of the monarchy is quite ambiguous as to whether, uh, in, as, in terms of any pity for 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 for. Um, for members of the Austro-Hungarian dynasty, I think there's a certain sense, again, of that they kind of got their just desserts. So there's kind of a mixed view on revolutions. But what happens with the with 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 the case of 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 Russia is a tremendous shock because it turns Bolshevik because it becomes a socialist revolution because it sends out this message that monarchy is incompatible with workers' welfare and workers' rights and that's something that the British monarchy is really terrified by and so you do get a sense at court of huge fears and um, that British workers might 
rise up and overthrow the over, overthrow the monarchy that they might uh, arrest them and throw them into prison and um, that they're that you know that the police might not stay loyal and um, and these are really extreme fears in the context of 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 1918 where there's really no evidence that there is this huge groundswell of anti-monarchical hatred uh, amongst the, the mass of the british population even the slightest things such as graffiti saying you know down down da, down with kings or something on a train can trigger you know a court memo of an analysis and discussion and fear that this is a portent for revolution tomorrow. Um, so I think they do get a kind of sense of, a, 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 you know, kind of mass scare, a kind of fear of reds under the beds almost kind of thing that is out of all proportion to, 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 to really the risks that the monarchy is running by 1918, when as a victorious state um, at the end of the war, it's really quite secure. You mentioned earlier that the two princes, Edward and Albert, who were later Edward VIII and George VI, both served during the war. What were their experiences like? If one looks at the war experience of the future George VI, um, uh, who is at the time Prince Albert, second son of, 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 of the royal couple, um, his war experiences are really quite difficult. And again, have not really received, uh, you know, from a kind of war historian point of view, have not really received adequate attention and exploration He's quite ill during the war from a stomach ulcer, which continues to 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 really disrupt his 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 eating and you know really his difficulty sleeping. He's suffering a lot from anxiety as well. When one reads his symptoms, you get a sense of you know anxiety being a factor here too, and we know that's a factor. Stress is a factor in in in, in ulcers as well. Um, and so for much of the war, he is dealing with this until they finally operate and finally resolve the, the problem um, while on board ship. So he, you know, he is he's he is he he goes to sea. He's he he's in the Battle of Jutland. He writes a, quite a vivid account of being in the Battle of Jutland and what it's like uh, to you know to be there with explosions going on and being 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 frightened that your ship will sink. And he performs quite bravely in that as well. And it, I think it takes a tremendous amount of his gathering up his courage, and um, you know, to, to 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 deal with what is a very very stressful situation. You can see. Um, for someone who's quite a shy man, it doesn't come naturally to him to be in, you know, be surrounded by all of this, um, all all of this war chaos and violence and 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 really, you know, horror. I mean, there are many lives lost at Jutland, um, and that you know. So there, there, I think I think if one looks at at, at what the war does, it, it you know, it sort of. Um, it, it's almost a training experience for George VI to mask his his, his feelings and to, to you know to show um, you know to, to show to show strength of character even when inside he's actually very afraid and and, and one of the things about his his his, his narratives and his accounts is he actually you can read very clearly the fear. Yeah. Um, and it, it's very much there. He doesn't put any bravado on it. Um, he finds this war very frightening. Um, and 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 you know so 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 I think George George the sixth has quite a quite a difficult First World War, um, and in its aftermath, one of the things that comes out of it for him is this sense that actually um, the different class groups in Britain must be brought together. So he sets up these um, these these summer camps effectively for um, boys from 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 public schools from wealthy backgrounds um, who will go go to camps and spend weeks uh, together with boys from working class backgrounds. And the prince himself attends some of those camps uh, and really and really supports them in the nineteen twenties. And that's a legacy of the war as well. This sense of of again. Um, treating everybody, um, uh, that the monarchy must treat everybody equally, that there must be no distinction between how it treats people. And then, in fact, it must actually work to try and bring about reconciliation between the classes, that that's in the, in, in, in both um, the interest of the country, but also in the interest of the monarchy itself as well for stability and to avoid any potential Bolshevik revolution, which is their big their big fear and concern. Um, if one looks at the, the future Edward VIII, uh, the First World War um, is extremely formative for him as well. 
Um, so one of the things about Edward VIII, before he goes um, away to the war, he's actually quite, quite um, again, quite um, a sheltered young man. He has not really had any 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 major life experiences. Um, you know, he's he's um, quite close to his parents. He spends a lot of time in in, in the family unit. Um, while he's away at war, and he actually he he, he has to argue very strongly to be let go, um, because initially uh, uh, the the minister for war, uh, Lord Kitchener, is afraid that if the if the Prince of Wales is captured by the Germans, it will damage British morale very badly, um, which again tells us about the status of the monarchy and um, that they're so worried about this. Um, Ed, uh, the future Edward VIII really lobbies to go, pushes to go. That becomes known. That helps to make him more popular again because it shows that he's willing to serve like like other boys his own age. He doesn't want to be left out. He doesn't want to be kept safely at home. Um, and he goes as a staff officer. And 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 he, you know, it, it really affects him that he is he is, that that all these people keep trying to protect him, um, while other young men his own age, many of them his friends, um, are charging into battle and are getting killed, um, are going through these horrific experiences, um, and he feels almost emasculated by it. And I think a lot of his later issues around his role as 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 as, as later Prince of Wales and King um, come from this sense that actually. That this, this, you know, these roles have somehow unmanned him. He hasn't been able to perform like a man on the battlefield, like all his peers. They have this battlefield experience and glamour, and he's been a staff officer. He and he hasn't been let go, go uh, you know, sort of experience um, experience battle. And that's one of the reasons why he keeps trying to go to the front and get into danger. It, it's partly about supporting the ordinary soldiers, which he cares really strongly about. But it's also about proving himself as a man, proving he can take shellfire. Um, Proving he can take part in those stories in the mess afterwards, where all the infantry officers are, are sharing stories of what it's like to be in battle, and 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 and, and, and you know, um, and that, that he can kind of join in that as an equal is very important, and and so this whole experience really forms him as someone who feels a bit less than, not really fully uh, part of part part of uh, a part of kind of the, the the growing up experience of his generation, um, and he he makes a lot of over, over he does a lot of overcompensating for that. Um, one of the other things is before the war, he's very inexperienced and shy around women. Um, during the war uh, in, in in France, he starts visiting prostitutes, like many, uh, in, like 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 many of his his, his friendship group at the time. And uh, he falls in he falls in amongst some really quite rakish friends uh, when he's on the Western Front, um, and that that I think also long term really does damage him. He's read some very misogynistic things about women. Um, he's he's he he becomes very. Um, um, focused on trying to prove his success with women and, and, and mistresses as a way of showing again that he is a man like all the other men on the Western Front. And it's almost, again, a compensation for the fact he can't go into battle. Um, so I think the war for for for, for, Ed, for the future Edward VIII is just actually incredibly damaging. Yes, it gives him contact with, with ordinary men and ordinary soldiers and makes him very popular with them because he does take lots of risks. But it also encourages him to take risks because risks can make you popular. That's a bad message to be taking forward into the 1920s and 1930s when he really needs to sort of knuckle down and be responsible and actually focus on 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 the formality of 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 his of his role as future king. In your recent feature that you wrote for BBC History magazine, you discussed uh, how George V supported the formation of a West Indies regiment opposing the war office who didn't want black men serving as uh, on the front. Uh, what was the reaction to this? And would that have made George seem like quite a progressive king? It's quite interesting because, again, if we look at the, the formation of the West Indies Regiment, this is again one of these behind the scenes moment, moments where royal influence is used 
to um, argue against the war office position and royal influence uh, is a factor in why the regiment is formed and the war office view does not win out. Um, and a lot of this, is, you know, it, 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 the ways this works, this royal influence works is, is very much through the private secretary, uh, Lord Stanfordham, uh, or the king's other private secretary, Clive Wigram, talking to certain people, making it known the king's views, uh, pushing behind the scenes. So a lot of it's actually not written down. So it's quite difficult to pin down exactly what the general reaction was to this rebuff, basically, to the war office position. Um, but in terms of the king himself, King George V took his role as monarch into, as a kind of spiritual role. Um, when we look, when we read about his coronation, it, it's, he, he, he takes all of this as a, as, as a religious person, as something that has been a role that, that God has bestowed on him that he must fulfil and that he has an equal duty to all of his subjects. And so all of the subjects of the monarchy for George V and also for Queen Mary um, must be treated equally. They have an equal relationship with the king who is, if you like, their guardian and their protector. It's, it's a very paternalist system. Um, and, 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 and so this understanding is actually quite different to some of the views of, say, the colonial office um, or, or the war office or indeed uh, parts of government as well. Um, and so I think that's where this, this, this move by George V comes from. He doesn't really um, see why one set of subjects should not be allowed to fight and another set of subjects should be. Um, and, and so he, you know, and, and he himself actually um, is, he has, has, he has traveled to India, for example, and, and has, he has Indian friends. Uh, Sir Pertab Singh is one of his, one of his close friends. Um, he has Indian orderlies throughout the interwar period. He is not someone who is, um, you know, who, who's, 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 who's kind of creating a kind of stereotype of a sort of um, a whitewashed world. He, he really sees all his, his, his empire, as he sees it, he sees it as his empire, um, as a, a place where, 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 where all his subjects um, ha- must have the same relationship with the monarchy, with the king, and and that comes to the, comes down also to the king's armies, where all of his subjects should have the should have the same rights within within the king's armies. He's dealing, you know, he's dealing though with a system that doesn't necessarily see uh, the world in in those terms, in, even in those particularly you know strong kind of monarchics monarchist terms either. There's a lot more real politique in how in how government um, and and the institutions of Whitehall see things. Um, and their concern is 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 to do particularly with the post-war and also with control of these colonial territories. Um, and they 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 also in the, for these colonial territories they want to preserve in some cases um, what we what we would term a kind of white supremacy in in, in some of these areas. Um, and so that brings you know that, that that explains that kind of clash between the war office and the monarchy. The monarchy uh, under George V. Um, it has a, it has a rather George V himself has a rather different vision of things. Now his, some of his advisors. Are 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 much closer to Whitehall's view around race than George V himself. Um, so I wouldn't say it was a progressive reign, uh, but I would say that the king um, himself has a very um, has a very kind of Christian inflected view of uh, of, of 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 a world that should maybe be um, one where subjects are, are have have greater equality than they have at that particular point in time. George V believes that as king, he treats everyone equally. He has this belief, um, whether it's entirely true, um, you know, one could, one, could, one could kind of look at maybe the honours lists and things and start to, to question that. But he, he has a belief uh, that, that as king, he is relating to every subject um, in a very fair way. Do we know what toll the war had on the royal family personally and emotionally? The sources on this are quite interesting. So if one looks at the, the, the later conversation that the King has with uh, Lloyd George in the 1930s, uh, when he's a um, much older man, um, 
uh, he, he's concerned about the rise of tensions in Europe and it looks like there's going to be you know another war with the rise of, of Nazi Germany um, and he actually says to Lloyd George I will go down to Trafalgar Square and wave the red flag myself rather than see this country go into another war so I think the toll there that that outburst which really shocks Lloyd George uh, he's you know not expecting this at all from from from, from what is a very anti-Bolshevik monarch um, th- th- there's just this sense of we cannot do this again, and I think that that sort of that shows that the, the emotional exhaustion that uh, George V has been through. Um, if we look at Queen Mary around the time of the abdication crisis, it's very clear that she feels very angry that her 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 eldest son is not recognising that many families in the country had had to sacrifice the lives of their sons uh, for for as she saw it for the for the monarchy and for Britain. And he cannot sacrifice a woman. So she is making that equation between, um, you know, giving up um, uh, happiness and love with actually giving up your life for your country, which is what people have done for the monarchy. And, and she finds that very, very hard. And, and that, so, so I think that legacy, again, of uh, that sense for both King George V and Queen Mary, that, that, that so many people have died for them, for king and country. Um, that they must now live this kind of immaculate monarchical life. They must produce this this very supportive monarchy that brings the country together. That it you know that 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 that, that helps to soothe and navigate and and, and you know promote um a, a promote a kind of a, a better a better Britain as a result of the war. Make kind of make good the war's sacrifices. And um, that really dominates their thinking. And it, it's a terribly heavy burden to carry. Um, the king at 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 an at an emotional level. Um talks to 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 a lady at court at one point saying you can't imagine what i what i suffered going around those hospitals during the war um, and one sees in the sources from the war just what he's actually seeing and engaging with i mean they see many dying men um they are at the bedside of many dying men um they see that you know queen mary writes in her diary you know that she'd visited a hospital in london after an air raid on the east end and she'd seen a, people um who, who wounded or, or singed and, and burned by the bombing and she talks about seeing a, a, a boy kill uh, her, who dies in a zeppelin raid and she sees him dying with shrapnel in his lungs i mean they're seeing horrific horrific things and princess mary too who's only a teenager going around on these hospital visits um, and and the king and the western front sees men dying of poison gas in hospital this this obviously would have had an effect. And um, at one point, the king writes to Queen Mary, if it wasn't for you, I would break down during the war. So we get this sense of how terrible emotionally the, the kind of the, the effort is to keep the keep the facade going of, of smiling and doing your duty and seeing all these dreadful things. And this is an era without counsellors, without them being able to really sit down and let it and have therapy or anything afterwards. I mean, these they carry it for the rest of their lives. And I think the two things that help them to cope are are, are, are really uh, uh, religion and and in the case of of, of the Prince of Wales uh, Edward VIII a sort of sense of of, of trying to promote European peace um, which 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 is a factor ultimately uh, in 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 some of his turning to appeasement as well um, which so it was quite an interesting um, idea of how can they make the future better to to redeem the cost of the war which I think all of the royals grapple with a bit uh, afterwards you can also see the impact in how they age. So if you look at the photographs of George V and the footage, um, by the end of the war, he's lost an awful lot of his hair um, at the back of his head. It's hidden usually by a cap. Um, he's gone grey. He's utterly haggard in terms of in terms of how many how many wrinkles in his the state of of his of his of his skin and his face by the end of the war. He actually dies quite young as well. Um, so I think that that stress, that strain, is very visible in in in, in their bodies. Um, Queen Mary, um, she's she, her, her, she starts to suffer um, a pain in her arm from all of the shaking of hands, uh, and continues on, continues doing that. Um, 
they're middle-aged when the war starts. I mean, they have teenage children and, and children in their 20s. They're, they're, not, they're not young. Um, and the war really does, um, you know, have an impact on them, uh, both emotionally and physically. Um, uh, it's a really extreme experience to have gone through in the roles that they were in at the time. How do you think their response during the First World War influenced that of the monarchy during the Second World War? Well, I think the two world wars are are quite different in some ways. So I don't want to make kind of easy comparisons uh, between them. I think by the Second World War, you've had the abdication crisis, which has really shattered the mystique, particularly the religious aura around the monarchy. And it's also a very different world. We've had the, the 30s. And, and during the 30s, you do have the rise of this kind of idea of, of war as futile, the First World War as having been, uh, having been um, uh, unnecessary for Britain, uh, lives as having been wasted. Um, that's when Wilfred Owen's po- uh, po- uh, poetry becomes popular, even though it's actually published uh, a good bit earlier. And um, this is this is the phase where you see, um, you know, you, you, you see figures like Sassoon, all of those becoming the key voices on, on, on the war. Um, and so by the time you get to the Second World War, Britain's mobilisation is, is really different um there there isn't a sense of uh, you know the kind of, of kind of edwardian romance around war at all by 1939 um, and in fact the new king um it, you know he's only been in the role since 1936 he's not very well known as a person yet um and that is one parallel with his father who'd only just come to the throne as well before the first world war um but but you know um, he, he's he's a, he's he's a shy man. George V is not shy, um, and and if we look at at at, at, um, at, at George VI, he is a shy man. He has a stammer. It is harder for him to make himself known to kind of create a royal image at the start of World War Two. Um, that said, where he does um, really I think have have his first really dramatic impact in the war is when he makes a speech about um, uh, I, 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 uh, standing at the gate of the year um, and and that you know that, that so, so so he starts to work through radio and that's an echo of again of what his father had done by bringing in the Christmas uh, the Christmas speech which George V had, had had initiated in the interwar period um, so the second world war it's much more through radio that you start to see the royals trying to create uh, that connection and it's it you know it, it, and newsreel footage much more that that in world war 1 that was there that was being used uh, one of the big war films is a film of george v at the front with his armies the king with his armies at the front and um, but by world war 2 that's become much more important and what's also really key is in world war 2 you have a leader winston churchill who does really overshadow the monarchy um, in World War One, you have a leader, Lloyd George, who would have liked to, um, but who isn't able to. And I think that speaks to the very different ways in which monarchy operated and was seen in Britain before the abdication, when there was really this awe around it and this sense of, 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 of a kind of religiosity or sanctification around it. And World War Two, where a lot of that has changed. It's a new generation who are fighting this war. They're younger. They've got different ideas. They haven't been, you know, they haven't grown up uh, under Queen Victoria um, and, 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 and kind of the Edwardian period. And so it's a, it's a very different, um, very different situation. And the Second World War Prime Minister, even though he's very royalist, Winston Churchill, does overshadow uh, the, ro- the, ro- the role of the king. Um, Often we point to the to the to the moment where the king and queen in the Second World War went to visit um, uh, uh, bombed out uh, houses in the East End, and also the famous uh, the famous comment by um, uh, by uh, Queen Elizabeth, um, who, who became the Queen Mother, um, about how um, now I can look the East End in the face. And she was really important in terms of trying to soften the image of George VI and give him a bigger uh, a bigger profile and help him to become this kind of pivotal figure uh, to the British war effort. Um, and it's that image of kind of family life where we see uh, the most important contribution of the British monarchy in the Second World War, because 
the, the, the British press and, 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 and propaganda uh, teams juxtaposed this image of a small royal family in the countryside having, you know, just cycling on their bicycles or playing with the corgis, two little girls and their mother and father, a very, very uh, low key, very democratic image of, of monarchy as a family, as a small family unit. And they juxtaposed that with all the all the images that were coming out of fascist Europe of, 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 of militarist display, militarist trappings, Adolf Hitler leading rallies of, tr- of troops and of Hitler youth. Um, and they were showing these, 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 this family of four in civilian clothing, doing ordinary things. And that was where the royal family in terms of imagery uh, was very important in sending out a message that Britain was not militaristic, it was not fascist, it was it was a democratic constitutional monarchy. It was a state where um, there was a you know there there wasn't bombast, there was um, you know quiet um, quiet familial love, um, and 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 that, that that was a very deliberate propaganda message where um, uh, where, where particularly the queen the queen the the queen at the time uh, in the Second World War was very in, influential in 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 really giving Britain this this you know kind of uh, image of 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 peaceable democracy. Um, the other thing that's that, that's significant is um, when they when they did visit the East End. Um, the, the, the crowds were not as huge as we see, for example, for the First World War um, surrounding monarchical visits. Um, so that's also something to ponder. I think the Second World War, the monarchy is um, more important in terms of sending that, that image of Britain as a, 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 as, a, as a democracy and the royal family as a family unit um, and uh, that, than it was in, 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 it went, when in the, in the First World War, when it was very much about symbolising um, a kind of a, a British, uh, the trappings of a British state as such. They kind of they, they, there was much more pageantry still uh, in terms of how uh, in how in, in terms of how uh, the, the monarchy's um, uh, sort of awe awe inspiring image was used in World War One to kind of create this this interaction with ordinary people as something that was kind of innovative and new. That's that's not so much there in the Second World War in the same way. So my final question for you: what, In your opinion, why did the British monarchy survive the First World War when so many others didn't? It's a very interesting question as to why the British monarchy survived the First World War when so many others didn't. Um, I think with, there, there's sort of two key things that matter here uh, uh, in, in this case. The first is, is obviously victory. So countries that were defeated did a lot of soul searching about the nature of their state and why it had effectively failed in wartime. And in that type of, 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 of explosive situation, um, anti-monarchism could really take hold. However, within that, um, when we do look at, at, at dynasties that were overthrown in the First World War, the anti-monarchism starts well before defeat. So there's something else here too, and this would be my second key thing. Um, how a monarchy is handling the war, how they're behaving, is key in whether that anti-monarchism that starts in wartime um, really explodes and develops into a mass movement or remains something at the fringes. And so in the British case, we see it remaining very much at the fringes in 1917, partly because of the way the, the, the royal family were so proactive in supporting the war effort in in denying themselves um, any kind of leisure luxury or food luxury or alcohol or anything, they were incredibly stringent on this. They really were living uh, in almost kind of quite quite um, uh, monk-like uh, uh, behavioural uh, uh, conditions. They really dropped all of the, the kind of normal trappings of court life, um, and and that so that's so that's how a monarchy behaves is a key factor in triggering that anti-monarchism to snowball during the war and to become something that can then drive revolution and feed into revolution, um, which can, which then, if, if defeat happens, is utterly explosive and destroys it and, des- and destroys a monarchy. Um, and if we look at the monarchies that, that are overthrown, if you look at, say, for example, the Kaiser's court, they're still serving caviar. 
Um, if we look at whether the, the women of the court are visiting hospitals, they're not. Um, if we if we look at the Kaiser himself, he doesn't go into areas of danger at the front. He stays very much in, in the in, in the rear zone um, and actually spends a lot of the war in in, in a castle back in Germany. Um, and, and so there is this sense that that maybe the German monarchy isn't enduring and suffering with its people in the same way. And, and key to that is, is the, the German equivalent of the Prince of Wales, the Crown Prince, who's actually building this magnificent palace, uh, the Sicilianhof, uh, outside of Berlin at Potsdam uh, during the war, really almost tone deaf to the fact that many Germans are now starving from, from the Allied blockade of Germany. And he's building this luxurious palace. It's still there. You can visit it today. It's where the Potsdam Conference happens at the end of the Second World War. Um, and, it, you, you know, it's, it seems remarkable that they would be worrying about this type of flamboyantly decorated palace, one room's decorated to be like a magnificent ship's cabin, um, during the end of, of, of a calamitous total war when their people are, are, are hungry. Um, so, so, so I think how a monarchy behaves is key as well. Um, and that's the bit that's been forgotten. It's, it's been quite easy to say, oh, well, victorious countries, um, their monarchies were, were obviously going to be more stable than, than, than defeated ones. But actually, there's more to it than that. Um, and where we see monarchies survive, but also then thrive, uh, is, 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 is in how they behave during the war. And then the other really key factor is how they treat the war dead, how they behave towards the war dead. And here, the British monarchy is a little bit special. Um, very early on, it realises the need to reach out to the war bereaved, through um through sending official letters um condolence letters um you know and 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 obviously attending things like the burial of the unknown soldier which which sees the king act as the chief mourner for an unknown soldier who could be of any class race or rank um, um or, or creed uh, who is buried in Westminster Abbey and that's very symbolic the idea that monarchy um, is going to mourn um, on behalf of the nation um, at the feet, uh, like at the grave of an unknown person who could be anyone from 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 Britain or its empire, um, and that actually that 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 is a kind of openness to channeling grief, um, and and the British monarchy is very successful in 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 ultimately uh, becoming the the kind of the the guardian the custodian. Of commemorative need of 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 people to grieve the war dead, um, and you you see that as a, another kind of further factor that really I think really does help to 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 to, to protect it um, in an era of revolution. And the contrast here is Ireland, because if we look at Ireland, there is a very strong anti-monarchism that gets off the ground in Ireland that snowballs and that becomes quite extreme. Um, and 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 you don't see a mass anti-monarchism in Britain in the same way at all. When you look for it during the war amongst ordinary people. It isn't. It just isn't there. There isn't. You know, people aren't toppling statues of royals around Britain during the First World War. The way that is happening in in, in Ireland, people are not. Um, you know, uh, they don't have to travel with heavy security in Britain. Uh, the, the Prince of Wales can go unaccompanied to to Parliament in London. This is not. You know, in the Irish case, there, there, this, this this couldn't happen. So we do see what real anti-monarchism would look like, and it's not there. The British monarchy is very secure um in many ways in 1918 compared to other monarchies uh, across across Europe and compared to uh, say the anti-monarchism that develops in Ireland that was heather jones her book for king and country the british monarchy and the first world war is out now published by cambridge university press heather has written a feature on the royals at war which appears in the october issue of bbc history magazine that's on sale now and also includes features on the surprisingly modern Middle Ages, the long shadow of 9-11 and Tudors in love. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Francis Pryor will be speaking about prehistoric life. (laughs) 
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.